Okay, here's the deal today. Grant and I are aware of the rumors and gossip. In fact, it was Grant who alerted me that there was even such a thing happening on message boards and other Oklahoma-related websites. Let me put it this way. I've paid very little attention to message boards since I graduated from college, so anything that happens in that realm, I'm going to miss it. At the same time, Grant's the opposite. He checks it all out. It's part of his Oklahoma football routine, and I'd guess a lot of you who listen to this show also have a similar routine when it comes to following OU football. I think this situation needs to be addressed clearly by me at the very top of this show. As you all know, I work at News 9 in Oklahoma City. Grant is not affiliated with any journalistic outlet, except for, of course, West of Everest, if you want to call this a journalistic outlet. On my end, I do not know anything about any kinds of rumors or gossip. Granted, I've got some feelers out to see if I can get any information, but at this time, I've got nothing. I'm very much aware that some information is out there on reputable OU websites behind paywalls. I'm privy to all of that information, but obviously, it's not my place to make any of that stuff public here on this show. Put it this way. I'm going to go through this episode without making any declarations or assumptions about what OU's roster is going to look like when the Sooners play LSU on December 28th. However, Grant, you know, he's a fan, and I can't guarantee that he will go through this episode with that same standard. Now, I know Grant's not going to reveal any privileged information that he may or may not have gotten behind a paywall, but outside of that, I really don't know how he's going to act on this podcast. We're recording this Tuesday evening, one day before National Signing Day, and one day before Lincoln Riley, Alex Grinch, Neville Gallimore, Creed Humphrey, Jalen Hurts, C.D. Lamb, and Kenneth Murray are all scheduled to talk to the media for the only time before they leave for Atlanta. Because of that, we don't have any Signing Day news or any other kinds of news that may come out Wednesday. This podcast, it might be short and sweet and will likely contain a bunch of LSU-Texas talk, seeing as that's the only game Grant and I have re-watched fully up to this point. It may have been a bad idea, but I charted every offensive play from LSU in that contest. I'll break it all down for you coming up on the show, and of course, Grant will provide his thoughts as well. Other than that, we'll see where this podcast goes. And just know that Grant and I are kicking around the idea of releasing more episodes this week, depending on breaking news. Plus, we'll want to share more takeaways from LSU and the Tigers' bigger games of the season that we finally get a chance to rewatch. What works and what doesn't work against this LSU Tigers team, that's what we're hoping to find out here in the next week and a half. I'm Lee Benson. This is West of Everest. It's the and 17. Don't you think you gotta run it here? Use that last time out. 37 is a hard ask. What can Burrow do with his third and long? Oh, to the middle. Complete to Jefferson. First down on his way. And that might be the knockout punch. Well, we don't normally feature opposing teams in the West of Everest intro, but today we do. Joe Burrow, his first Heisman moment of the season, and it came all the way back in week two, and it effectively buried Texas. He stepped up in the pocket to avoid a Longhorn blitz, kept his eyes downfield, 
threw the ball off platform, and it was a strike to Justin Jefferson, who outran the Texas secondary for 61 yards and the touchdown to give LSU a 45-31 lead late in the fourth quarter back in early September. We'll talk a lot about that game coming up on the show. At least I think we will. We'll see. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of West of Everest. Apologies for no episodes last week. I was out in New York City covering the Heisman Trophy presentation. It was a great time in the Big Apple, great experience, but uh, also a time where I could not be freed up to record a podcast, unfortunately. Of course, by now, all of you know that Joe Burrow has officially won the Heisman Trophy, and Jalen Hurts came in second place, which was somewhat surprising to me. I thought Hurts was going to be in third place behind Burrow, and I thought Justin Fields would get second place behind Burrow. Anyways, since we haven't had a show in quite some time, I'm going to stop blabbing here. I'm going to bring in Grant for the first time right now. And Grant, I know you didn't hear my opening take because I recorded it off the air, but did you at least read the opening take? Yeah, I read it. Glad you uh, glad you mentioned something. One of my concerns, and I, I, I told you this before coming on today, was, man, how are we supposed to just talk about this game in LSU with everything that's swirling around? Um, yeah, I just thought it would probably be pretty awkward. So um, I'm glad you at least brought it up and just knowing that, yes, we are very aware of what's going on. And like you said, there's nothing that we can speak with authority on yet. I'm sure, you know, we're going to find out for sure at the same time everyone else does. Um, But yeah, I mean, from what we do know, and you don't have to do a lot of digging online. It's pretty easy to find what's going on. Uh, But uh, perhaps some uh, some tough times lying ahead here for for OU in the next couple of weeks. Well, for what it's worth, the line in this game, remember it opened up at something like LSU by nine or nine and a half whenever the announcement was made that they were going to play each other. And I, you know, I remember, I think it came, obviously our last podcast was right when, you know, right after the playoff announcements came out and we were talking about that. And I, you know, we were saying, hey, if I think I was tweeting it out, I can't remember what we talked about it in the podcast, but said, hey, if you like LSU, grab them now because that line's going to go up and, and probably finish up, you know, definitely get to, to 14, maybe 14 and a half. And on Monday, I was checking out the line because I'm just curious to see where it's going. I've, full disclosure, I've already placed a sizable wager on the under in this game, which was about 75 and a half over under. And I bought it up to 76 just for a little extra insurance. So I'm planning on a uh, Oklahoma trying to do exactly what it's been doing the last month or so shorten the game, try to take the air out of the football, keep LSU's offense off the field. No telling if that's the way the game's going to play out, obviously, but that's why you know you, you, place, uh, you place bets, you place wagers based on the information that you have, and I had a good feeling about that. Anyways, I was looking at the line, and it had gotten to 13 as of Monday, and as of Tuesday, we're recording this in the uh, early evening Tuesday. It's up to 14, LSU by 14. So, uh, again, uh, you know, talking about the uh, swirling – I guess we want to call them rumors or the situation, things like that. I, the only thing I'm going to say that's – I'm not sure what I'm really saying here, but – and you texted me this before, and you're exactly right. If if you're somebody – and, you know, this – if, if – you can tell I'm stumbling because I just I don't want to say something stupid. Put it this way. If you got LSU at 9 or 9.5, you're probably feeling pretty good right now, which you should be anyways because um, – LSU is a really good football team, and Oklahoma is a reason why Oklahoma is going to end up being about a definitely a two touchdown dog, if not more. And this uh, this line, I, I'm assuming, once more information comes out, this line's coming off the books. I would guess. That's interesting, actually, and that's why I like to keep checking the line to see 
if it were to come off the books or not be available, that would be an indication that something's going on. Again, well, something sure is going on. Mean. It's just it's it's you got to wait until until it all becomes public. So, well, the thing is, though, these the Las Vegas bookmakers and the offshore bookmakers, they're out here and, and it seems like a lot of them have sources and things like that because they want to make money. And the fact that it's still available and it's only ticked up a little bit. Just it's noteworthy. It's still available. You can still get it. I mean, Before that's assuming that's assuming that Vegas has like has insiders that like I, I know these rivals and other like pay sites for people who are close to the program. That's assuming that they have sources that are similar to them, which is just not true. They just don't. For the college football playoff and teams this big, uh, they're going to have their info. I mean, just think back to at first. The main thing I think of when I think of kind of like lines when it comes to Oklahoma stuff and like things changing or things going off. Remember a couple of years ago, of course you do, whenever Oklahoma was about to play Iowa State at home. And I think one random like website had a little note of I can't even think of the Iowa State quarterback's name anymore that didn't play. Jacob starter. Park. Jacob Park, yeah. And uh so Jacob Park, it was rumors kind of that he wasn't gonna play. And then all of a sudden I think the night before or two nights before I some some website I saw had a little like note on the game like saying like note Jacob Park out and this was before it was public and then of course on Saturday morning the game was an 11 a.m. kick I remember going to the stadium and going out and to down to pregame warm-ups and seeing Kyle Kempt getting all warmed up and ready to go didn't see Jacob Park anywhere and and so that's the first thing I think of whenever there's potential rumors and stuff like that when it comes to college football because there's no Adam Schefter really of college football right I mean I guess there's a couple big time national guys that seemingly break some news but there's no like Jay Glazer you know there's no Adrian Wojnarowski it seems like in college football because teams are able to keep things under wraps quite a bit and Oklahoma certainly is a team that no matter what's happening Lincoln Riley does a great job of keeping things under wraps for the most part. I mean is he though because it kind of seems like everyone knows about this is this is why we kind of go crazy as a fan base because we know something is going on and yet there's just yeah, but silence. We don't know officially what's happening right we, now. We I I know and I know you're being a journalist and I know you have to say that but there's absolutely something going on right now. So it's it, this like this part is and I understand what you, what you have to do in your industry but as someone from like my perspective and a fan's perspective and I'm sure other people listening to this podcast it's frustrating knowing that there is something going on. And and I and I know people want to be they want to be solid with their sources. They don't want to report anything erroneous. I understand that. I get it. Uh, but like, just get some information out. Come on. Like it's <laughs> it's it's getting to the point where it's 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 ridiculous. And and I'm like I'm I'm already kind of working myself up to a lather like preemptively because I know Lincoln Riley's not going to say a freaking word about any of this. And that's that's frustrating already. Well, we'll see. And when he talks on Wednesday, and when some players talk on Wednesday, we'll see what kind of information we get. A lot Nothing. of it will be about national signing day. It's it's about national sign. There's not that no, no way they mention this at all on on, well, on the Wednesday stuff. No way. Here's a here's just a little behind the the curtain kind of thing. And this is a weird year because once the college football playoff was set. We were already inside of three weeks before kickoff of the semifinals, which is insane because before that, it's always something like four weeks minimum, if not five weeks, if not five and a half or four and a half. And so there's not a lot of time here. And now, of course, with the new National Signing Day in December, 
that throws a wrench into all the preparation. And then, of course, another Heisman trip for Jalen Hurts. So Oklahoma had that going on, all the awards thing. And so the reason I bring this all up is that the last couple of years with this December signing day, there's been plenty of time after the signing period to get ready and still prepare for the game because the game's still not going to be for another two weeks minimum, if not two and a half weeks or more. And so when National Signing Day has happened the last two years in December, every single question to Lincoln Riley has been about the signing class. It's almost like there's a there wasn't an official rule to not ask about the game, but it was essentially like, okay, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about the game. Let's just focus on the signing day class because we know Lincoln Riley and, and the, the gang, they have a lot of things going on. We're just going to ask about the class because that's what their focus is at right now. And then later on in a different setting, we'll ask about the game. Whereas now, this will be the only time we get to talk to Lincoln and Grinch and some of the players before they leave for Atlanta. And so there will be some opportunities to talk about other things aside from National Signing Day. So I don't know what's going to be asked. I'm planning on being there for it. So oh, we'll someone, see. Yeah, someone's going to ask, but I'm just, I'm just telling you, Riley's not going to say anything. And this is why this podcast, uh, it's, we enjoy this podcast for a lot of different reasons, but this is why maybe it's a little different than other ones is, you know, I do have my journalism side. I have to be fair and that's part of the job. And I, I know that and, and I'm happy with it. And then, that's why I wanted to be very clear. You got Grant on the other side who is maybe speaking for all of you listening. You guys are the fans. You guys are the ones that uh, want to know this information. You can kind of say whatever you want because it's college football and it's sports and it's supposed to be fun. And it is. And so that's kind of what this is right now. And I'm glad that we're addressing it off the top of the show. Any other thoughts on this? Anything else you want to get off, get off your chest before we get into the meat of the podcast? No, I just, yeah, I just, I, I just want to just reiterate just kind of where my mental frame is with a lot of this. I'm gonna be honest with, with people just kind of, kind of knowing what I know and everything like it's, it's, it's going to be tough to actually look at this game clear eyed now. And, um, I'm going to do my best to break it down. Uh, but make no mistake. OU is, is taking a pretty big hit going into this game. And, um, we don't, we don't, we don't know the exact severity of it right now, but it's, it's severe. So it's 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 going to be tough. It's going to be real tough sledding. <laughs> and again, for legal purposes, that's Grant's opinion on the matter, and it does not uh, express my views whatsoever on the matter at all. That's totally him. Any thoughts on the Heisman, by the way, before we get into LSU Texas talk and talking about LSU? Do you care? Did you did you pay attention at all? Did you even watch the ceremony? Didn't watch a single second of the ceremony. Didn't care. Um, it, it's not. It's not because I don't. Not because I don't care about college football or I don't care about who wins the Heisman. It's just um, honestly, if if Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray weren't the obvious winners going into the last two years, I I wouldn't have watched either. It's just not a the the broadcast and how they. It's just not a good show. They don't. It's not entertaining. They don't do a very good job with it. That's all. It's just. It's not worth my time. Um, having that been said, Joe Burrow is a very obvious deserving winner. Uh, he's one of the better winners we've ever had, for sure. I'm kind of curious uh, why you don't think it's a good show. What about it that you not like? It's boring. I've watched college football this entire season. I've seen every puff piece on every single one of those guys. I know everything about them already. I, I just who 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 won the award? And plus and plus we're at, we're in the internet age now, where everyone knows now who is going to win before they announce it. So it's just like, yeah, who cares? Like I don't. Everyone knew Joe Burrow was going to win. I don't need to see, uh, like, I, I've seen all of these guys play a lot of football this year. I don't need to see, like, puff pieces on them. I don't really care. 
Yeah. Okay, that's fair. It. I agree. It. If you're not a fan of any of the players that are involved or like Saturday night, we knew who was going to win. I'm kind of with you. I mean, why do you watch that? Because, yeah, all you're going to get is, as yeah, you put it very well, a bunch of puff pieces. I know I'm in the media and, and this is what we do and that's part of the show. But uh, it's that's kind of tough for ESPN in a way because they're like, huh, how do we present this even though we know Joe Burrow is going to win? It's almost like... They, this was a year they could have honestly done something different because everyone knew Burrow was going to win. It's like, try to be creative with it. Maybe, uh, hey, other guys, so like, for off the bat, we're going to be like, yeah, you know what? Joe Burrow's the winner, but uh, here is something. I, I don't know. I guess. Well, I mean, maybe they, they knew that. that. It's like around. the other guys, the other finalists aren't stupid. They know Joe Burrow was going to win. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm just... no, yeah, the, that, that, you know, uh, that presentation and that broadcast, that was for LSU fans, and that's okay. That's totally okay. The last two years, that broadcast was only for OU fans. And it's it's just kind of how it is these days. Well, congrats to Jalen Hurts. Second place, not bad. Did you think he'd get second, or where, where did you think he'd finish? I wouldn't have been surprised if if he was anywhere. Like, I'm... If, if you know, gun to my head, I would have guessed he would have finished second. But if he would have finished third or fourth, would it have shocked me? No, of course not. Yeah, I just I didn't think there was any way that Chase Young was not going to be fourth. I, I ended up being him and Justin Fields' vote totals are pretty close. Uh, actually, I mean all three, aside from Burrow, were pretty close, and Burrow obviously had a had a huge win. He broke a bunch of records. He broke uh, the largest margin of victory ever. He broke the record for highest percentage of first place votes. He broke the record for most points as a percentage of possible points. If that makes any sense to you. And he broke the record for most ballots named as a percentage of the ballots. So his name appeared on, on the most ballots ever. And I know this was a big talking point right afterwards and when the results came out. By the way, I was there to get the results in New York, which was kind of cool to get the official results right away and see all the numbers and be able to send out that information, kind of report on that before a lot of different people, which was that was kind of the, the, one of the better parts, one of the cooler parts from a media perspective being there, I, I will say, for the first time. But... Um, I know there's a lot of talk out there about, and it's fair talk about the people that voted and didn't even either have Joe Burrow on their list or didn't vote him, you know, number one or number two. I mean, and you know what? Like, I feel like this is one of those kind of takes that everyone should have kind of have the same exact take on Grant. Like, I mean, it was so clear that Joe Burrow should have been the number one first place vote on like every single ballot because he was awesome this year and yet of course that's just not the way it works ever he wasn't number one everywhere is it i hate to be that guy but i do think that there's something to like if you are not taking this that seriously and you're putting for example everyone was ripping on Tua tunga vilo getting one first place vote whoever voted that i mean that's ridiculous right i mean Tua is a really good player but he was injured and he missed the last whatever many games and uh, he should never have gotten a first place vote. I mean, like if you're a Heisman voter and you're doing that, you're obviously just not taking this very seriously. What do you think? Do you have any thoughts on this? I don't. I mean, you don't really care. May, no, I really don't. Like, I, I, my, my care level in the Heisman has has really dropped in the last really decade or so uh, because it's just a it's it's kind of a silly award. They gave the award to freaking Mark Ingram and Derrick Henry. Like, I, I just should we really put that much stock into it? 
Let's see. Isn't Mark Ingram playing pretty well in the NFL now, though? And so is Derrick Henry. Sure, yeah, they're good. So what's your point? My point is they very obviously, both of those guys were very obviously not the best player in college football those two years. Oh. They were just the best player on uh, the best team. That's it. So it should have been what? McCaffrey and one of them, right? Uh, McCaffrey should have won over, uh, yeah, should have won over Derrick Henry and uh, Sue should have won over Mark Ingram. Was that the year that that uh, Toby Gerhardt was also up for the Heisman. Yeah, and actually, at the at the time, I remember saying that Toby Gerhardt should have been ahead of Ingram, but I have, in, in retrospect, completely denounced that take. A terrible take. Mark Ingram was a mm. much better college player than Toby Gerhardt. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Indomitian Sue is, is probably the best defensive lineman in the history of college football, and he was the best, he was the best player in college football that season. He should have won. I, I do wish that you know, I, I could easily make the argument that, you know, the guys putting, like, for instance, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Chase Young got a first place vote. I could totally argue that person is taking the award seriously if they're if they're taking it like if they actually think that Chase Young is the best player in the country. That's completely defensible. Well, here's the thing. Chase Young actually got the second most first place votes. He got 20. That's Joe not a Burrow lot. There's like, there's, like, there's like 700 voters. And he got 20 first place votes, which means There's more than that. There's like 900 or oh. something. So, yeah, like, I mean, this yeah. is just not even so we're just nitpicking just like a handful of people. Who cares? I, I how just, many how many years has there been? I can't wrap my head around a defensive player being the best player in the country because you just relative to the sport you, and what you're doing, you don't have that big of an impact on the game. That's just I think that's I'm sorry. Like, well, now we're just talking. Well, then we're talking just, about value then. Is it the most yeah, valuable player award or is it the best player award? Well, what's his job? His job is to line up and use his strength and power and sometimes finesse to like tackle quarterbacks, whereas Joe Burrow has to do so many different things. Like his his requirements of the position are so much more than your requirements of the position of a defensive end. That's my thing. There's just yes, so and I know. I, I know when you get when you get down to this point, is it So that's why I have a tough time saying that Chase Young's a better football player than Joe sure, Burrow because sure. The quarterback position, I'm sorry, that's just kind of the rules. But like, also at the same the time, position on the field. Joe Burrow can't do anything that Chase Young can do. And vice versa, obviously. Yeah, but, and vice versa. But, and then, but, and this is me playing devil's advocate. I obviously think Joe Burrow should have won the Heisman. Um, then why don't we just call it the best quarterback award and just do away with it? We should. Okay. If that's your take, that's fine. I'm just saying, Get away like, from, I, uh, what's it? Is it Davey O'Brien, I think, is the top quarterback award? I think that's. Yeah, it. I mean, just yeah. have the Davy O'Brien Award and then Davy O'Brien Award Part Two in New York City. That's that's what it is now. So, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I just like I, it's just kind of boring. Like I, I, I would much rather the debate happen about about who is a better play. Like I, I obviously thought Bur- Burrow should have won. But if you want to come in and say Chase Young is is the best pure football player in the country, I I don't I, I don't know if I have a ton of interesting arguments to go against that. Chase Young right. is arguably better at his position than Joe Burrow is, which I don't know if I would agree with that, but it's arguable. Mm. No, I don't know about that. I, Joe Burrow is, and I'm looking forward to watching more tape obviously all i have is is a, a rewatch of the texas game he's and, you awesome. know, everything i saw he's awesome throughout the season too i mean it's not like i haven't seen him this year i've seen him a lot but uh you know not breaking any news here the guy is incredibly impressive and might as well start from burrow's 
first big game of the season. And I'm sure everyone that listened to this show at least watched that game or saw extended highlights of that game or have, have gone back and rewatched like you and I have, and that's the LSU-Texas game. Here's the first thing I have for you, Grant. More than three months later, because this game was early, early September, do you think this game is still relevant when it comes to learning anything about LSU? I mean, there's like there's different shades of it. Is it is it the most relevant? No. Because I mean, because they've probably played much better games up to this point. And honestly, their offense has performed a lot better against better defenses over the course of the season as well. Mm-hmm. So um no, I, I would say if you're looking at LSU's defense, this is probably a game you shouldn't even really pay attention to. Yeah, that's that's probably fair. And we're going to talk about both sides of the football. I think offensively, there certainly is a lot you can take from this game because what they're going to do, I mean, they're going to show you what they run. And I'd be surprised if I watch more tape and they look totally different as far as schematically, personnel-wise, formation-wise. I'll be shocked if they're adding a bunch of different things. I'm sure they're going to add a bunch of, you know, some new, I shouldn't say a bunch, some new things. But, like, think about Oklahoma. I mean, well, Lincoln Riley runs. I mean, we kind of have certain ideas based on personnel and things that he does that he likes to do and that's that's the whole point of fall camp and preparation leading up to the season so uh, I think this is a good base a good starting point for Texas I'm sorry LSU's offense and that's why I charted all the different plays because I'm curious to see how the offense in early September compares to the offense later in the year when they're playing teams like Auburn and Alabama and then of course Georgia in the SEC title game but defensively yeah I think LSU's defense certainly is playing a lot better football right now than it was back then I do think there could be some interesting things though you could take away from this LSU Texas game and as I watch more games I'll be curious to see if LSU's defense attacks other offenses that spread it out a lot like Texas does similarly to how LSU attacked Texas so I'll be watching obviously when they play Alabama Alabama is going to be the Florida somewhat because um, obviously Dan Mullen's got some some spread, you know he's he's an offensive guy, and, you know so on and so forth. I'm trying to think of other teams kind of late in the year. Uh, who was like the last? I mean, not not Georgia really, because uh, anyways. But yeah, I, I, it's not going to be an end all be all, but there'll be some things I think we can take away from this game. So I want to start with the LSU defense because I. Th- think this is not going to take as long and I would guess and maybe I'm wrong about this but the listeners probably want to hear mostly about LSU's offense and all of those weapons and and Burrow so let's start with the LSU defense especially considering that the defense is playing a lot better right now compared to back then so there may not be as many things we can take away from this game what did you see and I know you you didn't chart every play like I didn't know I didn't even take notes I just have general thoughts so (laughs) okay it's not it's not that I didn't it's just no, I know it's fine. We just we just watch it back differently. It's okay. So you're looking at the rundown here, like just generally, what do you think uh, LSU did defensively against Texas? Like, what was their plan against the Longhorns? They were manning up. They put five defensive backs on the field for pretty much every single play. They were manning up on the outside receivers, and they were essentially trusting handling the run game with their front five and six guys, which largely they had. They were fine doing, um, and they were basically just kind of challenging Texas's receivers and, and Ellinger to beat them downfield, which they did on a fairly consistent basis, especially in the second half. Yeah, that's pretty similar to what I saw. I saw you know that base nickel defense, five defensive backs on the field. 
maybe there was times where a sixth defensive back came on the field. If so, I don't remember it. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I don't remember. Seeing I didn't it. take notes as closely on LSU's defense as I did on LSU's offense. But for the most part, it was a base nickel. I thought LSU's defense looked a lot like Oklahoma up front. They got the three down lineman. You had kind of the rush linebacker or jack linebacker, whatever the heck LSU calls it, standing up, creating a four man rush. And you mentioned it on the outside, the corners all night long was just playing man on the outside receiver. Every single play, man on the outside receiver. And on the inside, it looked to me like there's a lot of zone from the linebackers to try to take away some crossing routes because they knew that with that man coverage on the outside, there could be some space on the edges that Texas could exploit, but they were playing some inside kind of zone and, and keeping an eye on crossing routes to take those away. So it wasn't automatic for Texas. I saw LSU using a lot of two deep safeties, a lot of split safety looks. And if it wasn't that, they just throw Grant Delpit as that single high safety quite a bit and just kind of let him do his thing and play man across the board because that guy's everywhere and he's a really good player. And so that's, for the most part, what I saw against Texas and didn't change a whole lot. That was that was kind of it. Uh, it was it throughout the entire game. They kept doing the same exact thing. And, you know, they'd mix in a couple creative blitzes here and there, some twists and stunts up front. But I thought that was kind of fascinating that there wasn't a whole lot to this LSU defense. I thought it was kind of clever what they were doing with the man on the outside and and playing a lot of kind of zone on the inside principles like that i think they split the field in half every once in a while would play man on it didn't work half. out it didn't work out well for him because 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 duvernay just destroyed them over the middle of the field and it didn't quite happen until the second half it seemed like texas kind of used they adjusted second half adjustments yeah so to you what seems to be in that game particularly because that's what we're going off most of what is lsu's strength on defense what did you if you had to say hey what's LSU's strength based on that game what would you say their strength is Christian Fulton Derek Stingley and Grant Delpit that I mean that's the secondary the, yeah uh, those three guys in particular because um, I, I I would say and maybe maybe the more that I watch them this will you know maybe this will this will be different but I do think maybe they at safety in terms of defending the pass they may have a bit of a weakness uh, but their corners are really good. Corners are solid. It was a tough night because uh, even though Texas knew that, I'm assuming they knew, that definitely after halftime they knew that LSU was going to be manning them up the rest of the game, there was very few chances, very few plays where the outside receivers made plays. I mean, they, they, they got them every once in a while, but for the most part it wasn't there, and Ellinger just kind of didn't really go to these outside receivers. Uh, and I'd agree. Yeah, it's uh, Grant Delpit's really good. He's he's good at at seeing the play and coming up. I I don't know if you're gonna be able to get him making a wrong read a whole lot and and showing him eye candy because he's pretty disciplined. I I can tell. I remember in the pre preseason you were talking a lot about this guy, and you know, I didn't watch a whole lot of LSU last year. Watched their defense that closely, and you know, I so I hadn't seen this guy much. But uh, I'm sure as I watch more tape the next ten days, he's gonna jump off the the film a lot more. Because he jumped off the film definitely against Texas. Yeah, if I had to, you know, if I was formulating a game plan just based solely off of this this game, um, I would be doing everything in my power to to test the linebackers in coverage. That's pretty much what I would be doing the entire time. Because um, I think that's that's where they struggled the most against Texas, like getting deeper, getting deep in the middle of the field and covering Duvernay on those. But also at the same time, I I worry just because I don't. That's not really part of OU's repertoire. 
Like, how often is, is Hurts sitting in the pocket and picking picking guys apart in the middle of the field? He just he just really hasn't done it all season. It doesn't. It doesn't, yeah. So I have a couple notes on this next prompt that we have in our rundown. So I'm going to start here and then let you kind of play off of it. And what about areas in LSU's defense against Texas that, that we're seeing that maybe Oklahoma could stress or give LSU some problems? And I have a couple notes in here. And... I know it's a clever concept that Texas used at one point in the game that stresses one of LSU's safeties. And what happened was that Texas sees, again, for the seventh time in this podcast, that LSU's corners in that game were playing man up all night long. So what Texas did was it lined up Devin DuVernay in the slot. Colin Johnson was on the outside. And Johnson just runs a quick little eight-yard curl, which opens up a ton of space behind that corner for Duvernay to run a slot corner, a slot corner route, and so with inside leverage, that one of those split safeties is put on a in a tough spot. And Ellinger had Duvernay, but he overthrew him. He just he threw it like two yards too far to the corner of the end zone. It was incomplete. Uh, that's a touchdown. I mean, that uh, granted, this isn't Baker Mayfield. This isn't Kyler Murray throwing pass for Oklahoma. This is Jalen Hurts. Sam Ellinger's a better throw over the football than Jalen Hurts. I don't think Ellinger is is a great throw with the football. He's gotten better throughout his career, but I think do think he's better than Jalen Hurts, so there's no guarantee that if this is a situation for Oklahoma that it'll work, that Hurts will be able to put that ball on the money uh, because he's he can be inconsistent, but that is something that Texas attacked that worked. I mean, if he can make that, uh, that same touchdown pass to Nick Basquin that he did in the Big 12 title game yep. consistently, that's the throw. It's right there. Exactly. But exactly. I, I mean, it was even more open against LSU in this particular route than it was against Baylor. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, yeah, to answer your promptly, where like I see a lot of ways that LSU's defense can be had. I just I'm I'm just not exactly sure this is the OU team to do it. Um, a thing that I said before uh, we came on to record this is that OU's last three offenses, so 16, 17, and 18, would eviscerate this LSU defense. LSU would just have absolutely no answers for either of those offenses. Uh, this time around, with with Jalen Hurts' perceived kind of weakness throwing the ball and going through his progressions, that's really going to free up LSU to do what they want to do, I, I would guess, over the course of this game, which is going to be playing man coverage on the outside, and I bet they're going to try to free up Grant Delpit to kind of spy Jalen Hurts in the run game a lot. Um, and... We'll see. I don't know. We'll, we'll see if, if Riley has the, uh, you know, is able to kind of counter that. But in terms of, of like where they can have success, this year's OU team, they can run on LSU for sure after watching them. They're, they're not special up front. Not to say that they're bad. In fact, they're, they're, they're good up front. They're just not special. They've played uh, – Baylor is, is just by an order of magnitude is, is better up front than, uh, than LSU is. It's, it's not, actually not even close. I'm sure it's close. Don't be that hyperbolic. Baylor, we know Baylor's front's good. It's, Baylor's front's different. You know, they attack with only three down linemen. Lynch, and they, Roy, and Lockhart like they, better than all three starters for LSU on the defensive line. Well, the difference, though, is that LSU does have that fourth guy up there, kind of like Oklahoma does, so there's there's an extra body to cover. And Texas, granted, Texas couldn't run the ball all season long, but Texas didn't have much success at all running against LSU, but that's not that surprising. Ellinger did it in spurts. Uh, sure. Sure. And but yeah, the the one play that I, you know, that I think they could dial up and that could have quite a bit of success against the LSU team and I'm talking like 
explosive type plays is that little outside veer that they've been running a lot this year where um, where if Hertz gives it, it's to the outside shoulder of the of the left tackle or right tackle going to that side. And typically a lot of the times they run it when the other team is playing man coverage because OU attaches routes to it and they just have the receivers run down and that clears out that entire side of the field. Um, I could absolutely see OU having a lot of success with that play in this game. Um, but of course, it's just, if that's just one play, I mean, LSU would adjust. Yeah, and, and the problem is if LSU, as we watch more tape, if LSU's principles are very similar to this game, and I know you've watched a little bit more than me, but I'm just basing off of this game. What LSU would do, though, in those scenarios against Texas is that they'd have linebackers you know, playing that zone concept where they'd be able to scrape over and maybe take that and have the, a chance to make that tackle off the edge, even though that corner oh, but that's is where, being run out of the play. No, they, they won't be able to do that, though, because that's where Riley attaches the, the pop passes to it. And as soon as they move, sure. that's when. Okay. So, yeah, no, 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 no. They, they wouldn't be able to do well, that. I mean, they be good for one or two plays, and then hopefully Oklahoma would adjust. And you could also attach some sort of a speed option look, too, to where that guy is put in conflict and has to take Hurts, and then Hurts can pitch it to somebody, and then that frees up everybody yeah. I, I guess up the line. Yeah. If, if, I was, if I was game planning for this game, a, a pretty big part of my game plan would be trying to force those corners to tackle my running backs um, because they don't want to. Of course, they, they, no, I mean, they, they're not being – I mean, against Texas, they weren't asked to. They were asked to just exactly. up, take away exactly. their man, which – for the most part, they did. Because I, I mean, I can, I can, I can promise you, neither of those guys is getting off a CD Lamb block downfield. It's just not going to happen. Um, so I, I would, that that'd be a big part of my game plan. Another couple of concepts I saw Texas use, or at least one of them, and then I have another idea that Oklahoma runs that potentially could be effective against this type of LSU defense that we saw against the Horns. Is that uh, I saw Texas run its outside wide receiver deep down the field so you you clear out that corner because that corner's playing straight man coverage and then in a twin set you just have the slot guy run a nice little out route and it's tough for that linebacker that will or sam backer to get over to the flats quick enough and that's that's a minimum five to eight yard gain at minimum and they did that only once i saw with devin duvernay and he picked up like 11 yards in a first down and i didn't see him go back to that at all so just these concepts of clearing out the corners because you know they're going to be cleared out and what do you do then uh, how do you create kind of easy open throws for Hertz? Uh, that's something that texas did but just not as much as i thought texas should have then another quick thing that i that we've seen oklahoma run not as much this year but you know what i yeah I, I guess this is kind of we've seen a little bit of this with you know the lee morris pretending to block and then jetting up the field kind of to create an easy throw for Hertz. Whenever LSU has that split safety look, there's a, a lot of space in the middle of that field, and they have those linebackers kind of playing zone coverage. I think if you could somehow scheme it up to where you get a slot guy, a wide receiver on one of those linebackers, which I think you were kind of hinting at a while back, and to run those routes to where instead of doing a crossing route, it looks like a crosser, but then they cut it up the field behind the linebacker, that could potentially be a, a play that could hurt LSU in this potential defense that the Tigers have been running that we saw against LSU, uh, against Texas. And also, uh, just just simply enough, I think they can have some uh, some some success just running inside zone in this game too. Uh, I think I think this is actually their biggest this is their biggest uh, this is the biggest advantage they have in the game is their interior offensive line against LSU's defensive line. Biggest advantage they have in the entire game. All right, Grant, based on this LSU-Texas game, 
what's your I think we've kind of uh, maybe kind of hinted at it a little bit, but your biggest concern for Oklahoma's offense, mine is is probably kind of similar to yours, and it's it's just the idea of uh, Jalen Hurts being asked to make throws, and there'll be throws to be throws will need to be made, and you know that LSU is going to play an aggressive style. Although I did notice randomly at some times on third down and short and even one time on fourth down, which actually was the Devin Duvernay long touchdown slant and run LSU was playing some soft coverage, which that was kind of weird, but I'm not sure for the how, most part I'll be on. Yeah. I'm not sure how aggressive they're actually going to be Lee. Um, they don't, I, I think Dave Aranda knows his defense and we, we haven't really gotten into it much, but LSU does not rush the passer. Well, that's not one of their strengths at all um, to almost to the point where it's not even really a threat at all. Um, hmm. and so I, I think Aranda knows that and he, I don't think he wants to, he wants to make himself weaker on the back end by having to bring pressure because he knows that he can cover or maybe it's, maybe it's the other way around, but I just, they just, they really weren't getting a lot of, a lot of pressure on Ellinger at all. Like Sam Cosme dominated Kalevin Shasan. Um, there's a couple nice little stunts and twists. Yeah, yeah. That that got to Ellinger at times, but, but yeah, that's, that, that, they didn't. That's blitz a that's a, whole a lot. That's, that's a poor too. Texas offensive line protecting the passer too. Hmm. And this is not. This is consistent. LSU has struggled to get pressure on the quarterback the entire year. It, it wasn't just the Texas game. So, okay. I mean that that's like one of those things. That's one of the openings I was talking about when I was saying, "Oh, OU wants LSU out of this group." This is one of the openings I was talking about. Um, because I mean, they've, they've seen numerous teams this year with a better pass rush than LSU. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that LSU is not a threat or anything like that. It doesn't mean they're not going to be able, that, that doesn't mean that they won't get to Jalen Hurts a, a healthy amount of times just over the course of the year, rushing the passer has, has really been the biggest weakness of their team. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the last thing I have on, uh, LSU's defense for now for this podcast is uh, I don't know if you noticed this or if you're taking mental notes or whatever. I didn't write down the exact number, but it seems like there was a, a healthy amount of pass interference calls against LSU in that game there. Even though they were taking shots or corners were kind of grabbing and holding a little bit. And it makes me wonder as I, we watch more tape back, is this aggressive style? Are they going to get away with these a lot more once they get into SEC play? I don't know. And how will the game be called in Atlanta? Is are they going to allow a lot of tugging and fighting? And because uh, it's the classic cliched SEC defensive back play. I mean, they try to get away with a lot of stuff. And Oklahoma has done a lot more of that this year than they have in the past. And it's worked more than it has in the past because Oklahoma's actually playing decent pass defense this year. But did you notice that, or is that just me? Yeah, I mean, I I noticed it, but not. I think there was at least three PIs against defensive backs, if not four. Yeah, I mean, and that's so. not and that's not surprising. I mean, Texas has at times last season just totally perfected the PI offense. Oh goodness, yeah, my God. And Good I just I, I don't know. OU doesn't OU just hasn't really taken a ton of shots this year. Where because typically if there is going to be PI, you know the the pass has to be close to the receiver. And I feel like ever since the 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 calendar has turned to October, Jalen Hurts hasn't been close on any of his deep balls like at all. Hmm. Jeez, I had one more thing. What was I going to say? I hate when this happens. Texas jump ball, P.I. Oh, uh, I, somebody on the West of Evers Facebook page, and I'm sorry, I don't have it pulled up right now, one of you listeners. I apologize for not uh, calling you out or, or giving you credit 
specifically, but brought up after the the Big 12 title game, saying, hey, uh, was there no pass interference calls in that game between either team? And I went back and looked at the the play-by-play, and, and there, there wasn't. You know, in, in a Big 12 game, a Big 12 title game, there was zero pass interference penalties. Uh, just kind of a weird nugget that uh, one of our listeners brought up to us on the West of Everest Facebook page. I wanted to just, we're talking about PI right now. That's, that, and it's a whole new Big 12, I guess. Uh, that's, to that's be fair, there were, I mean, I think what, I don't even know if there were 50 total passes in the game, though, which is probably a low number for yeah. a Big 12 game. For a Big 12 game, yeah. Okay, that's fair. I think there might have been like one defensive hold. So kind of like a PI, but but not technically a PI. So oh, let's switch over to the LSU offense. And let's start with something that you brought up on our last podcast about LSU. And you kind of brought it up to me a little bit, kind of off the air, and we talked about it a bit in the in the show, is that there's very little motion and movement pre-snap for LSU's offense. And you're talking about how LSU likes to just kind of line up and then go. And so watching this Texas game, I know you've seen it before, but rewatching it is is that kind of what you saw? Yeah, there were some there were some like shifts and stuff like that, but it's I mean not not like wholesale shifts or anything like that. Um but no, I mean there is no motion. There's no motion in this offense whatsoever. Yeah, and so I kept track of every single play like I said very early on in the show, and so I'll go down the list here and I'll count all the different times there was either a motion or technically what it ended up being was a shift. You're right, because sometimes it's motion, sometimes it's technically a shift. They just Basically, they're moving a player from where they were originally lined up somewhere else. So we're going to call it like a motion shift. And so I haven't tallied this up prior, so I'll just go down my notes real quick and count. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 12 times and I think LSU ran something like 68 plays and I stopped counting after the uh the play that you heard in the intro the Burrow touchdown pass to Jefferson and so I think LSU got the ball back after that and probably ran the clock out or something I you know so but anyways only 12 different times they either motioned or shifted and there wasn't any sort of motion like orbit motion to totally switch everything to the side and, and kind of mess up the defense and, and get keys read wrong. I mean, it was there was much, as you said, Grant, there was, was no one in motion while the ball was being snapped. Correct. If they did go in motion, it, it was your typical motion as in I'm a receiver on this side. And now I'm on the other side. The only time the ball was snapped while somebody was in motion was when it was Edward Solaire, the running back motioning to the flats out of the backfield on a play to swing it out to him from the motion. That was it. They did that twice, I believe. And the first time they swung it out to him, and then I think the second time they didn't throw it to him, and they, I think uh, Joe Burrow, it was a design quarterback draw. So they they wanted to make it look like they were going to throw it to him, and then instead Burrow pulled it down and ran. They sure do love that that, was uh, it. that swing pass to 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 Elair out of the uh in the flat. That's like it's Edward, Edwards Hilaire, right? Is that what Edwards Elair Hilaire, yeah. Um OU is OU's gonna shut that play down. I'm I'm actually very confident of that. They've Oh Edwards Hilaire, yeah. Yeah, Sorry. they've they've done a really good job all season long on on stuff like that in the flats to the running back. Um, and Texas snuffed it out all night too. I mean, going side to side did not work against Texas defense that night. Texas defense 
played uh, like again the side to side routes pretty easily. Uh, it's just down the field, middle of the field. I mean, they explosive play after explosive play. So here's what LSU does. Let me get back to the the rundown here. So so the, okay, we got that out of the way. Um, let's see this next one. This next question is this something that we should say for the end or just get to it now? I mean. I guess I threw this in here. You know, we can say it now. I mean, we're going to watch him play a lot more. But uh, in this game, I mean, how good was Joe Burrow in this game? I know he we got we praised him a lot back when it happened in September. But going back again and watching it, I, he was just absolutely stellar in this game. I he he might have made a made like a handful of mistakes, maybe not even. I mean, he was awesome all night. Yeah, I was to say yeah, the the one pick he threw was. Was bat was was batted at the line of scrimmage, and it wasn't a very good read by him either. No, it wasn't, wasn't a great read, and uh, yeah, Texas made a nice play there, which we haven't even talked at all. Actually, uh, oh, we probably should have talked about this during the LSU defensive port uh, part. Uh, that pick, that the one interception that Burrow threw, set up Texas inside the five yard line, and for the second straight possession, Texas wasn't able to score inside the two yard line, which we totally skipped over. I don't know if we want to. No, I mean, who cares that, about that? It's just it's a okay. it's a fluke. They, um, what like and so actually, I I was I almost said this before we came on to record, but what a weird game that was. A game in which I think if you watch it from beginning to end, just it's so obviously clear that LSU is the much better team, but that game was right there for Texas to win, and they just couldn't like they just and they pissed down their leg in the opportunities where they just couldn't. Where, where, where they just could not, where, you know, it, it couldn't happen. And they did, and it was just, did, did you get the same feeling? That, that that LSU was just so clearly a lot better, but Texas still absolutely could have won that game? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it, you could easily say it came down to that play that we highlighted in the intro, that third down and 17, that they get a stop there, and LSU's punting, and Texas has the football with plenty of time. Uh, yeah, like two and a half, three minutes to go, yeah, whatever it was. Like only down by six with two timeouts left. Yeah, plenty of time. Yeah, plenty of time. And then also, you can look back to the first quarter whenever they were stopped, fourth and goal, where Ingram dropped the pass in the end zone. That's an easy touchdown. The guy. I mean, Texas should have been up seven to three. I believe that's what it would have made it. And then, you know, who knows if if Burrow throws a pick if they would have scored a touchdown because obviously LSU would not have been pinned so deep in their own territory. So you know, maybe. Texas doesn't get that opportunity right afterwards to score again. So, you know, maybe they just get the one touchdown. But still, that's one touchdown that Texas could have used because the Horns only lost by a touchdown. <laughs> so, I, But you're right. Yeah, I mean, LSU looked like the better team, but Texas did a really nice job, especially after halftime, adjusting and, and figuring out a way to get in that game. They pretty much, I mean, yeah, Texas pretty yeah. much, uh, they gave all they, all they, all they had essentially in that game their their season basically went into the gar- garbage after that game <laughs> uh but yeah i mean burrow was so good and i mean right off the bat the very first series of the game when i was charting his throws i mean he was already showing his pocket presence his movement uh, his accuracy just putting the ball exactly where it needs to go back shoulder throws slants i just I, I can't mean, i i just cannot square who Joe Burrow was last year compared to this year. <laughs> I, I just can't do it. That stuff he was not doing last year. And anybody who says that they saw this coming or they saw flashes of it last year, just know. 
He's Although a com- there were some flashes. He's there a completely different presence. player. Completely. And and there's no. and like I'm I'm a human being. I have a brain. I it, it works. I know that that's just not realistic. There's no way that he made that sort of jump from last year to this year, which is just it's just an obvious indictment of the offensive coaching staff was that was at that program before Joe Brady got there. I mean, h- how on earth can it be anything other than that? Joe Burrow is so very, very clearly the best quarterback in the country, and it's not even remotely close. And last year, he was he was like a negative for them last year. And, and it obviously no, I, wasn't him. It was his offensive coaching staff. And I just, I, I, it's, it's insane. And a part of me is just really salty that LSU, what they're doing this year, every single guy that is a part of this offense this year was on campus last year. And they, and they just, they get one new coach, and then all of a sudden, they have one of the best passing attacks in the history of college football. That pisses me off. Well, to be fair, I was telling you last year, Joe Burrow did show flash. He was not that bad of a quarterback. He had good pocket awareness. He had good mobility. He would throw good balls here and there. It just, there was, there were flashes, even though you refused to see them or admit it. Really? Just, he, complete, that offense was he completed terrible. less than 60% of his passes last year, turned it over a ton, and now this year, he had maybe arguably Auburn the, game. he maybe had, beat Auburn at Auburn. I mean, he played so many incredible plays in that game that was like oh oh all right well this guy does have something and it weren't just by accident and it wasn't just that game there were some other games too i remember seeing some some pauses from him it's just really yeah, so but you, so the offense you saw good. enough to think that yeah it's pretty realistic that he went from 58 percent completion percentage no, no. to 78 percent no and he i'm throws, not saying like, that I mean, i'm just saying that he did display some talent last year you make it seem like he He's like one of the worst football players you've ever seen. Yeah, like okay. He, well, that's He was put in really bad spots a lot of the time last year and he had kind of made the most of it. All the exact there. same players were on the were on the roster last season. Yeah, it, it just shows you how important coaching can be and coaching is in football. And, that's, and so I just that's yeah, why this like, sport is so cool. I'm fine with someone arguing, yeah, like Joe Burrow showed flashes of of being a really good player last season in his fourth season of playing college football by the way, and now in his fifth season of college football. He he improves to the point where he is he's the obvious number one pick in the draft. Like, are you freaking kidding me? Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. And and Joe Brady and is it Steve Steve Ensminger? I'm probably wrong on that. Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Uh, I feel like I want to look it up just so I'm right. Like, I just it's yes, yeah, okay, is Steve Ensminger. Yeah. I mean, whatever those guys have done, it. it I mean, they they've been awesome. And they put him in fantastic spots to succeed. And the thing with with uh, Joe Burrow and Ed Orgeron told this to anybody who would listen over the weekend. By the way, uh, Dean Blevins was able to get a nice one on one interview with Ed Orgeron, and I was there filming it. That was pretty neat. After Burrow won the Heisman, and I mean, Dean and and Coach O were kind of chatting it up like they've known each other for years. And uh, anyways, but Orgeron said, "Yeah, I've I've never seen a player as smart as he is." And just I mean, it's one game, and I'll see a lot more of it as we go on. But that Texas game, he just he clearly has he knows what the coverages are. He knows what he's looking to do, and the whole point of each snap is. And he seemingly makes the right call every single time. And it helps that he's like what six four, whatever. Like he can see. I know like the whole height thing is not that big of a deal, but I do think it helps. I mean, he's tall. He can see over the line. Like there's no like. He's not going to ever be like kind of being uh, covered up by 
uh, offensive lineman. He's going to be able to read and see the entire play develop. The safety's back there. He'll be able to see who the linebacker's coming up. Like He's really good at those RPOs and everything like that, and he's deadly accurate in this offense. And it's not just wide-open guys. A lot of times it is, but he's putting the ball exactly where it needs to be, at least against Texas, for the most part, the entire game. It's incredibly impressive. I'm just, yeah, I, I think the... This season that LSU has had is just, I mean, hats off to them and hats off to the guys on LSU's team who have who have experienced that. But I'm just like, I, it's so stupid. Like, I just, LSU in the last 20 years has been gifted two national titles. I, they've, I mean, I, I, I thought, I thought them, I, I thought them playing against Alabama in that rematch nine years ago or eight years ago or whenever it was now in the national title, I thought that was unjust. I thought they got they got screwed over having to do that. Um, but a part of me was like, yeah, well, you were really lucky to win a title in 03 and 07, so uh, kind of take what you can get. And then they get a season like this where it's just just out of nowhere. Their offense goes from, I think, like, efficiency numbers are just... are. They're insane. I think last year it was like, I can't remember the exact stat, but if you go by like ESPN's offensive efficiency metric, last year they were in the 70s, and now they're number one with the exact same players. So yeah, I, like, it's, it, it's, I, I, can't, I can't come up with any other solution or, or explanation other than the offensive coaching staff in Baton Rouge before then had, had to have been one of the worst in college football. Oh yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, because LSU's be. personnel is awesome. They've always had a bunch of yeah. They've always had a bunch of talent. They always recruit really well, and it's all coming together. And the question is, what does LSU do? And man, nothing they, special. Not surprising. They never huddle. Uh, they ran a bunch of tempo against Texas, and the whole idea behind that is is Brady and Insminger. They don't. They don't want you to have time to sub. Uh, they want to get to the line of scrimmage. They want the defense to get set and show them and tell them what you're running defensively. And then a lot of the times, if, if they're not in hurry up, they're not in tempo, Burrow will kind of look over and kind of get the call and, and go from there. But a lot of the times, is they, they do go in tempo. And I was doing a percentage. I was counting up, Grant, what they are predominantly doing at LSU offensively, they are predominantly 11 personnel. Almost every single snap is out of 11 personnel. That means one running back, one tight end. I think there was... I oh, really? My, Actually, yes. after watching that game, I would guess that they're in 10 personnel a majority of the time. Nope, nope. They, they move their tight ends everywhere. They were in 10 personnel, I wrote down, one time the entire game. Oh, okay, no, 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 no. Yep. Okay, I'm oh, going to have to go twice. back and watch because I remember saying, "Up, oh, they're in 10 personnel there." Up oh, and again, and again, and again. Nope, but they're not. They're in they use three different tight ends. They use number 81, number 44, and number 10. Those are all tight ends. And they move them around and they put them in different series. Sometimes they'll split them out wide, which well, is Well, if kind the tight end is split out wide, they're not a tight end anymore. Well, no, yeah, they're still there's it's a personnel grouping. One running back, one tight end, three wide receivers. Well, I, I know, but end. if a but if a tight end is lined up as a receiver and it's a four-wide set, that's 10 personnel. No, it's still 11 personnel because the personnel is based off of what position you play. You're a tight end. Whenever, uh, geez, that, whenever, oh my gosh, 49, like, whenever Gronk would split out wide, it was still 11 personnel. He's still a tight end out wide. You know, whenever... Uh, Wait, really? Oh my, why, I, yes. <laughs> That, there there seems to be a, a large flaw in that. 
What do you mean? I mean, it, it, because if Gronk is based. If, if Gronk is split out wide, he's no longer he's not playing as a tight end. But that's his position. He's a t- but he is the tight end. He's he's a tight end, and you're moving him around. He's a move tight. When George Kittle moves around, the, he's still a tight end. It's just it's all based on the personnel. Whenever you say eleven, I mean, if it's ten personnel, you don't have a tight but end. But isn't the, field, the position you that you're receiver. playing currently? That's the position that you are. No. No. I think we're getting into the weeds now. But like I, if. Well, that's what's so interesting about it because the, t- the tight end can tell you a lot about each formation and what they're trying to do, and that's why I track it so much because a lot of the times they put their tight end as the up back. They'll put their tight end down on the line. Actually, not very many times they'll put their tight end with the hand on the ground. And then uh, five to ten times they would split out whoever was playing tight end to the outside, and that would kind of be sometimes they would swing it out over to, to uh, Edwards Hilaire, basically having him as a blocker on the outside. Uh, and other times they would line up the tight end as a slot in twins or an inside slot in trips and run them down the field. And number 81, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Thaddeus Moss, Randy Moss's Moss, son. Yeah, yeah he, had a, he had a big catch in the second half just running down the field, and it wasn't even Burroughs' first read. He came off of his first read because it wasn't there. He was trying to go to Chase or Jefferson and went to the middle of the field where he found Moss for the, the big gain. So it, it's... I mean, they were in 11 personnel almost the entire game. They were in uh, truly with only uh, with one running back and four wide receivers. I have a markdown just twice the entire time. And then very early on in the game, on the first series, they went empty five wide on back-to-back plays. That was it. The yeah, entire but game, I'm, they're pretty, playing with- I'm pretty darn sure, though, that Edwards, Elair, and Moss were on the field there, so that wasn't. So that was still eleven personnel, no, according to your no, logic. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. They weren't on the field. I made sure to look. They weren't. <laughs> so it, it's it's a predominantly eleven because that's what Oklahoma does too. I mean, they're they they love eleven. Maybe not as much as this year. I haven't tracked it as much, but I know prior with Murray and Mayfield, it was a lot of eleven personnel. They like to keep because uh, and it's weird with Oklahoma because the upbacks, the guys like Carson Meyer last year, and you know those were they basically those are technically. Like they use them as tight ends, and they're kind of like that hybrid, you know. Obviously, an H back, so you can kind of get into the weeds a little bit there with that. But the vast majority of the formations that they would run, that LSU runs, is three by one sets. They love trips, whether it's tight trips, whether it's just regular trips. They love trips. Sixty plus percent of the time against Texas, they were in trips and with a single receiver to the to the uh, to the you know the weak side of the formation, and. I was trying to find tendencies. I found a bit here and there, but not enough to really where I was at the point when I was watching kind of late in the game thinking like, oh, okay, they're in this formation, this personnel, they're going to run this. Like once or twice I got it right, but they do enough different things to where you can't, I mean, maybe I'll change my mind as I watch more tape, but uh, they did enough to where it looks a lot of the same, but they run different things from it. It's kind of similar to what Sean McVay gets known for a lot in L.A., what the Rams do, they try to look the same but run different plays off of it. And that's kind of the vibe I get from LSU. They want to run a, some different plays, different routes, but look the same a lot to try to confuse you. And so the genius is in the simplicity, and it helps that they have incredible wide receivers in Chase and Jefferson and an incredible quarterback, and Joe Burrow is able to, to deliver it. And obviously their running back, too, is, is very shifty and very good. Yeah, Edwards Elair, uh, he's good. He was uh 
he was a guy actually my my original thoughts on the game was was to dismiss him thinking if you're gonna beat LSU it's you can't really worry about that guy uh but if I want he reminds me a lot of David Montgomery almost yeah. like almost to a T they're like the exact same player He's almost more explosive. I think he's a little faster than Montgomery too. Yeah, I would probably. Montgomery is we. Yeah. I think Montgomery's a tad bigger, but yeah, yeah. Edwards Elair is probably a little more explosive, a little faster. And if there's LSU fans listening, us comparing him to David Montgomery is not a slight. It is a, a very very large compliment. Yeah, he, uh, he always against Oklahoma would never get brought down right away he would break at least one tackle if not two tackles against those terrible oklahoma defenses which, but really and but I, it wasn't just oklahoma he would break tackles against the entire big 12 tell me if you if, if you saw differently i saw virtually zero um not a lot of difference in the run game at all they pretty much ran the same run play over and over again when they did just inside zone correct is all it is yeah inside zone baby and they love running inside zone out of the tight trips with the tight end is an up back and they they love going tight trips with uh tight single receiver to the backside with minus splits as well and that way uh, especially whenever they're kind of going hurry up and going fast like I saw when they'd hit a big play they come up they go hurry up they go to those tight tight splits and they'd go ahead and run inside zone and what can they do what can they do off of that inside zone look Grant run RPOs and they can do it looks exactly like the previous play where they run it and then I'd see the next play they'd run the same exact thing but Burrow would pull it and they'd throw a, a slant behind the linebackers on RPO I mean so it's it's incredibly simple it's just incredibly effective because they have a guy back there that is able to diagnose the coverage the formation and it made it work in Texas you know Texas there you know, Todd Orlando is an aggressive defensive coordinator and it worked. I mean, the, the times where they were able to get stops on LSU, it seemed like Edward Solaire, he had a couple really bad drops in that game on swing passes. One probably would have gone for first down. It was, I think, the opening series of the first uh, third quarter. Whenever they got stops, it was because LSU was trying was was trying to force the run too much. It was. I mean, that's mm -hmm. essentially what it was. There's only one, uh, th uh, only one three and out the entire game that Texas was able to get them off the field three and out which yeah I don't think not that I, surprising but uh yeah I don't know and it, it totally could change you know as we go on here but the more the more I watch LSU's offense the more I just thought the only way to beat these guys is just to is just to beat a mano -a mano up front that's it you your defensive line has to win a vast majority of their battles and your defensive backs have to punch the receivers in the mouth that's the only way I think to stop these guys with any sort of consistency and you know what? No one's really been able to do it. And there's probably been defenses nope. that are that are much, you know, much better prepared to do it than OU is going to be in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, although I will say, um, at full strength, this Oklahoma defensive line absolutely can give LSU LSU's offensive line some problems. Um, but you know, we're, we'll we're not we're not sure. So. I'm trying to go through the rest of my notes here because I have any other Burrow LSU offensive things to get to, and I came across this one, and it was uh, the touchdown pass by Burrow that made it 30 to 21 LSU early on in the fourth quarter, and this was after Texas had scored to make it 23-21, and LSU's offense came down the field, answers with ease, goes six plays for a touchdown, I think set just six plays, 75 yards, and the touchdown pass was a fantastic play design. 
they ran the tight end on a deep corner route who was lined up as a as an up back tight in twins and his job was to occupy one of the split safeties that Texas was using they're playing some sort of cover too I'm not sure if it was two man or what and they ran the tight end on a deep corner so that got one split safety to go that way and they ran Terrace Marshall on a deep post in the middle of the field while Justin Jefferson ran across on that side of the field as well and that occupied one of the linebackers so what that did is that with that one split safety out going to the tight end it created a giant void in the middle of the field where it was just basically one-on-one with Marshall against the cornerback and the cornerback had outside leverage and so all Burrow had to do was just throw the ball to the middle of the field and it was it was a touchdown it was a great throw I mean it's just and you know we know Oklahoma Grant Alex Grinch likes to play a lot of split safety looks and if there's an opening, there's, there's, you're showing a part of the field that's open, it seems like Burrow and Brady and Insminger they look to attack it. And we'll have plenty of more time, hopefully, to go more into detail on this, but somehow so can you, disguising uh, coverages yep. is going to be incredibly important. Can you disguise that? Can you, get, can, you, can you disguise a coverage to the point to make them think that's what you're going to do and then get out of it and, and hopefully Burrow will throw a pick is kind of what you're hoping for in that situation. Yeah, exactly. Um, but really, I guess I, 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 and of course it could change as I watch more, but I think right now the game plan against LSU's offense has to be, you basically have to hope that Neville Gallimore plays the best game of his career up front, and you basically just have to trust Deshaun White and Kenneth Murray to stop the run game, I think. And just everyone else has to be focusing on the pass. And I'm curious as we watch more tape, and we talked about this a little bit off air before the podcast started, I'm curious to see what other defenses implement to slow down and stop LSU specifically I'm curious to see what Auburn did because that was a pretty low scoring game and I remember hearing I didn't watch that game very closely when it happened hearing that Auburn was able to hold LSU to a lot of field goals and stall them out in the red zone and and so I'm curious to see and then also the Florida game too because I know that game was kind of close and uh, LSU got a late touchdown to get some margin in that game I want to see if there's any teams that implement kind of the style that we've seen from Baylor this year and what Iowa State's been doing as far as just what we've seen to kind of beat the spread, keep everything in front of you, make it really difficult, and force teams to go down the field on multiple plays. I want to see if that's an option because if so, I mean, that's not Alex Grinch's scheme. That's not what they do with Speed D, but I don't know. You you have not as much time as normal to prepare for this kind of big game, but – I'd be curious to see what kind of wrinkles he throws in and, and would Oklahoma potentially throw in some sort of uh, wrinkle to where they're playing more, you know, three safeties deep or having that middle safety, that roam. I don't know if it's possible to do it in three weeks because that goes against everything that they've been taught. But I'm just curious to see what other teams do defensively against this LSU team to potentially slow them down. Yeah, I mean, I it's like I said, I, I I predicted when the when the matchup is set, I I thought maybe OU we'd see a lot of that that three deep tight tight front coverage from them, uh, but like you said, yeah, it's not something that they've done a whole lot this year. So um, we'll see. And they're not, I mean, they're not deep. They don't have a lot of bodies in the secondary either. Yeah, unfortunately. so that's that's tough. And I mean, <laughs> and they're going to be even more shorthanded as we'll as we'll learn later. I don't know when we'll learn, but later we will. Let's see. When did Trey Norwood tear his ACL? Was that? Oh, wait. That was August. Crap. Oh, he's not going to be ready to go. He's not okay. going to be ready, no. <laughs> it wasn't uh, like Caleb Kelly back in the spring to where. Uh, so, yeah. Um, all right. That's that's exhausted my 
notes my full rewatch that we talked about that a lot longer than i thought we would so good on you know i'm gonna pat myself on the back pat ourselves on the back that was not bad Uh, what we're hoping to bring to you at least with this podcast and hopefully some more this week is you know we're not the recruiting podcast we're not the podcast that's going to probably not going to break any news to you but we want to give you the meat and potatoes x's and o's in-depth football stuff i mean that's what we love about the game that's what i love about the game i know grant loves that too and i didn't have time to watch a bunch of games before this but i did have a plenty of time to watch a full lsu texas game take notes and, and try to give you guys a good idea of what that team looks like at least early in september and so i hope that this was pretty much informative and a good listen for you Anything else, Grant, on this game? No, other than Joe Burrow is an alien, and I don't really under... I mean, the amount of times there were there were throws in that game where I was just like, oh, God, that was, that was good defense and happened way too many times for me to feel any sort of confidence about, about the Peach Bowl coming up. I didn't give you a chance to comment on that back-breaking touchdown that we played in the intro. I mean, how nuts was that play? I remember watching that the week it happened you know i watched it after the fact because i you know oh you played that night or whatever and i had to watch highlights of it but just uh, i remember re-watching that game because i wanted to see what both those teams looked like and i saw it was third and 17 and i did I, you know, I hadn't seen the highlight yet and i was like wow it's third and 17 and lsu ended up winning this game by a touchdown i mean holy crap i mean does texas get a stop here and like how does the game get to 45 to 30 and then burrow makes that play and it's like oh my oh my gosh like what an incredible play. Just, I mean, I don't, just a great play. I, I think out, you know, until that, uh, that, that play in the SEC title game where he, where he, that was very Baker Mayfield-esque that he ran around in the backfield and then threw the bomb. That's his play of the year. But before that, it was, it was the Texas play at the end. Mm-hmm. That is, um, man, that's just a big time play. I, I can't even, I, I'm jealous. I'm jealous of the LSU fans who got to lose their mind on that play. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny i mean that's that was kind of similar to i'm trying to think of uh one of the the there was multiple plays like this when oklahoma played ohio state in 17 but the plays where we just kind of lost our mind big touchdown i mean the one to lee morris that was awesome on the uh gosh i can't like it like a fake screen and then more oh, the one where they the took the lead the back oh yeah that entire ohio state game was just uh i mean yeah that's 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 my favorite ou game of all time so <laughs> uh, all right so the next game that i'm gonna look back on and rewatch of lsu will be the october 12th game against florida so i will watch lsu florida and then from that i'll move on to lsu auburn oh i'm and then after that i'm I'll definitely gonna watch the vanderbilt game to see how vandy's terrible offense scored 38 against lsu all right yeah i i think if memory serves a lot of that came in garbage time i thought but um. Yeah, I mean, Vanderbilt scored twenty-one eh, points after nah, halftime. That's that's the same excuse OU fans used to say a lot of the time, and that stuff. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It, like the the best defenses don't give up stuff in garbage time. They just don't. Hmm. Yeah, but it still was uh, a while back. Yeah, okay, that might be worth a look to see some of the plays. I mean, at one point LSU was up thirty-eight to ten in that game, and uh, ended up winning sixty-six to thirty-eight. Ooh, it does look like Vanderbilt got a defensive touchdown before halftime. I'm just looking at the box score right now. OU's going to need, uh, definitely, probably going to need one of those. 
Oh, actually, it looks like Vanderbilt got two defensive touchdowns. Oh, so maybe it was uh, all right. So, And the last one was in the final two minutes of the fourth quarter. So they got 14 points off of from their defense. So take that away. And Vanderbilt only scored 24 points with its offense. So I don't know if I'm going to go back and watch that game. Yeah, I, I don't know. All right, well, I think that's it for today. We're going to see what happens on Wednesday, which is, of course, signing day, and then all of that. Wait, hold on a second. I got, I got one thing here that we haven't right. talked about at all this season, and I really, I, I kind of want you to go on the record. Or maybe, may, maybe this will be best served after the season, but I want to hear your thoughts on Baker Mayfield's season. And, and I, I know you and I have, have, have talked about it a little bit, like off the air and stuff like that, but... Um, I just... I mean, really bad. I mean, he. I was texting my friends the other day about this, and yeah, I've kind of had this thought for probably a while now. But um, Baker Mayfield is is not not the player, not the person I thought he was, and I'm incredibly disappointed by it. And I know it's popular to make up excuses about Freddie Kitchens and. Odell Beckham Jr., which there certainly is some blame there, and just obviously the Cleveland Browns franchise. But, I mean, we talked about this before he started playing for Cleveland and before the draft, is that if there's anybody that can kind of be a person to change a franchise, it's Baker Mayfield based on the information we had at the time. And I said it a 100,000 times leading up to it and during his career and every time it would come up about his attitude and the way he acted and kind of his brashness and how he would take shots at people that took shots at him. And the whole thing was, I always said it, he's always been able to back it up on the field and therefore he's able to get away with the way he's been acting. And whenever he finally starts feeling and seeing some real adversity, which he only had a little bit in college and honestly, his first year in the NFL, he, he didn't have a whole lot of it. He had a little bit of it. But this is the first time he faced some real football-type adversity this season. You know, How will he handle it? Will he become more humble? Will he uh, be quiet? Will he hit the film room? Will he improve, get better? And I, it's pretty clear that he did not know how to handle it. And I have always kind of thought he'd be able to figure it out. But that was me being incredibly naive, you know. And me being incredibly biased, too. And I was wrong about that. He, you know, he was an immature kid. He's, what, 22, 23 years old. Uh, he overcame a lot in his life to get to where he was. Everyone knows his story. It's incredible. He's, he's incredibly good. But he has played, for the most part, incredibly poorly this year. And I'm incredibly disappointed with him. I don't think it's all Freddie Kitchen's fault. I don't think it's all, uh, you know, the offensive line's fault. I think when you're a quarterback and you have the talent that Mayfield has, you have to, it has to go through you. You have got to adjust. You've got to play better, bring people together. And it's just, it's so easy to blame other people with it. And I, I just, I think it's mostly Baker Mayfield's fault. I think he just hasn't played very well. And it's really easy to point to all the offseason stuff. He did a, a bajillion commercials. We're still seeing commercials of him throughout the year. And frankly, it's I hope he's embarrassed by it. I mean, obviously, he's the one playing in the game, so he's not at home you know, watching himself on TV and then going to commercial after he throws a pick to see himself doing a 
a progressive ad. I mean, he's but we're seeing it, and it's frankly it's embarrassing that that's what we're seeing, and we'll we'll see how he handles this next off season if he grows up a bit and sticks away from the limelight and kind of reassesses things. So it's. I, yeah, I mean, the best way to put it is I'm just incredibly disappointed. I feel like a, I feel like a parent, like a parent that's just tisk tisking tisk tisking their kid and just saying, you know what, I'm just really disappointed in you, son, because that's the way I feel. And it's it's been really hard to watch him this season, and I, that's my off the cuff uh, Baker Mayfield thoughts. And I I thought you know honestly a few weeks ago whenever. They beat Pittsburgh, and even with the whole crazy Miles Garrett stuff, I, I, I thought that they were kind of turning the corner a little bit, and the schedule wasn't very good for them. I thought they were going to make the playoffs. I thought they were going to somehow find a way to make it, and whatever Baker needed to step up and play better, uh, he, he didn't, and they lost to Devlin Hodges, uh, and and they, they lost to a, a not-that-great Arizona team this past week, and his he just hasn't been very accurate this year. And that's why he was so good. He was deadly accurate. He's not anymore. And I don't. I know there's an article by PFF that came out today, of kind of explaining what happened to him. And I haven't read it fully yet. And I'll go back and read it. You know, a lot of their stuff is analytics and, and numbers based. But I mean, it's just he he just hadn't played very well. And I don't know why, but I'd like to think it's probably he 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 didn't take it as seriously as he should have and we can only hope that this whole entire season the whole sophomore slump thing was obviously a real thing for Baker Mayfield hopefully he learns from it and if he wants to truly be a really good NFL quarterback he's not going to he's he's not different he's going to have to be like all the other guys that have been quiet sit back <laughs> learn their playbook practice really hard and get better because all the talk all that stuff it it kind of it ended, and that roster is incredibly talented. There's a reason why they're over under. I think was like nine and a half games or something like that, and still they're going to end up winning what seven or eight games, which is for Cleveland. The fact that they were winless, and they only had one win in two years prior to this. That's not that bad, but given the expectations, as we all know, it's, it's a disappointment. And so, uh, just yeah, that, that's that's the best word. Disappointing, Grant. Okay. So the the thing that I'm struggling with is that we we saw the real Baker Mayfield in the last eight games last season. That's I mean that is Baker Mayfield. So I don't I don't know. So he's proven that he can do it at the NFL level. I don't I don't know what I don't know what happened to that person this year. Um, and so yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not going to put it all on Freddie Kitchens. I don't I don't think it's all on Baker Mayfield either. I think it's I think a lot of it is is probably just the Browns as an organization as. As dumb as that sounds, I do think that that organization just does has something wrong with it. I think that's very clear. Um, Freddie Kitchens absolutely needs to be fired. He's done a terrible job this season, um, and I, I think what Baker needs is he needs a he needs a veteran offensive mind from the NFL to mentor him and to settle him down a little bit. I, I if if John Dorsey if you know if he wants to improve that franchise, he needs to be thinking to myself. What can I do to maximize my quarterback and put and you know and put him in the best position possible? And I think that's what he thought he was doing with Freddie Kitchens. In retrospect, it's very easy to look at that now and say that was a massive mistake. He's done a terrible job this year. Um, 
And so I, I, I would I would like to see Baker Mayfield with a more competent coaching staff. And I know as soon as you start talking about coaching staffs, a lot of the times with NFL players, you kind of already lost the battle. I think a lot of the time, but I, we saw Baker Mayfield for what he can be. And this wasn't just, this wasn't just schemed up guys. He was hitting wide open downfield like Trubisky was in his first couple years. He was throwing the ball downfield into tight windows and completing explosive plays into tight windows down the field. And I think that person, I think that player is still there. I, I really do think he is. There's just something not right with that organization. And, you know, I, whenever they made the trade for OBJ and they were doing all that stuff, I started to get a little uneasy. I started to get uneasy. And, I, I you know, that that's just a franchise that was not ready for the big time. They wrote a check that their butt could not cash. And it turned out, too, it's, you got to mention this as well, for being what were they seven eight and one so i mean they weren't the typical you know two and 14 or heck oh and 16 or one and 15 browns but i mean they weren't they weren't a playoff team last year Uh, they only won seven games for a team that went seven eight and one their schedule was absolutely brutal this year i mean that's not supposed to happen you're not supposed to have a schedule like that whenever you're a middle of the pack team you're supposed to have a a way more manageable schedule and so that obviously factored in quite a bit, and it all kind of came crashing down because I know Arizona's, I think, pass defense is not very good, and Mayfield didn't play very well this past week. And, and prior to that, all the kind of bad pass defenses that Cleveland's faced this year, I think he's, he's done okay. He's, he's played – but the thing is they haven't played a lot of bad pass defenses. I mean, I mean, look at their schedule. I mean, Tennessee is playing a lot better now than they were. I, you know, I think Tennessee is very good, but they beat the crap out of them. That game was so weird, though, because – Cleveland was winning I think going into the fourth quarter or something like that and then the the wheels fell off by the way I know this again a bad year everything's bad I'd love to see a stat though how many interceptions or how many of Baker's interceptions this year have been tipped or like balls that should have been caught like his accuracy has been bad this year don't get me wrong but I feel like early on the first eight or so nine games it seemed like every single picky through it was like, man, that's incredibly unlucky. I mean, the one against the Niners on Monday Night Football down by the goal line where it wasn't the best throw, but Antonio Callaway just dropped it and tipped it up in the air, and the Niners picked it off. It seems like so many of Baker's picks this year have been plays that should have been caught. So just that's like a, like a little asterisk. I'd be curious to find out Another how many thing. of those were. Another thing as well, Odell Beckham Jr. has had a terrible season. Um. Whenever I watch them, he's never open. He's not getting open. And, man, he's dropped a lot of passes, too. I mean, he dropped... He has dropped more than I... Th- I thought he always copped everything. You he, know? Dropped, he... he dropped two passes on Sunday that were, just, that were perfect. That were perfect NFL throws. Jeez. Right in the bread basket. And he just, like, right, like, hit him right in the hands. Dropped it in the bread basket into his hands. And he just dropped it. So, I don't know. I, I, that's, Odell Beckham Jr. is a guy franchises need to stay far, far away from. I understand he's soft-spoken, and this year he's generally been a model citizen, but just just bad mojo follows that guy around. I, I would yeah. I would stay as far away from that guy as humanly possible if I was an NFL franchise. Yeah, I I would like to see him gone from Cleveland after this year because he needs to know, be Baker's, gone. Yeah, you, you can't. Baker's bring him never back. been Baker's never been a guy, and I know he's only been this is only a second year in the NFL, but even at OU, I I, I guess he did throw the DD a heck of a lot in 2016. Excuse me. In 2016, I mean, Didi was his main guy, and I remember even I was thinking back to this the other day. I remember going into that 2017 season, 
thinking, eh, I mean, it seems like it was the Baker Mayfield, D.D. Westbrook show a lot in 2016. Are we sure Mayfield's going to be able to spread the ball around and get the ball to all these players? <laughs> well, turned out that they lost D.D. Westbrook and the offense was even better in 2017, and he spread the ball around to everybody and then well because we had so someone has, we had someone better than dd westbrook on the roster and we had no clue got to even play against ohio state <laughs> uh, yeah i mean so so i mean baker's not a guy that he's got like one main target and there's there's obviously a lot of human element where he a lot of the season has been trying to force the football to odell beckham is because to keep, to keep the guy happy and that's just that's not how he plays i mean he plays to whatever the coverage and the formations given him and like what's schemed up i mean that's the kind of player that he needs to be. That's what player you should be, unless you know you're in those crunch times where you got to get the ball to your best players here and there. But uh, so yeah, I mean, clearly the rapport with him and Jarvis Landry is is a lot better than the rapport between him and, and OBJ. So, I, but yeah, I mean that schedule was brutal. They played. I mean, you go to you look at a team like Buffalo, and I mean that the Buffalo schedule. I mean, I know they played Buffalo. I mean, the Browns beat Buffalo <laughs> this year somehow. You know, and you look at their schedule, and it's just like a cakewalk almost every single week. And I mean, what was Buffalo last year? I mean, I think they were might have like a middle of the road team in 2018, kind of like the Browns were. For sure, Buffalo was in the playoffs last year. The Brown, uh, Bu- Buffalo was six and ten. So, oh Buffalo yeah, they were in the playoffs one, two years ago. Yeah, Buffalo had one fewer, one fewer win than the Browns, and their schedule uh, this season was just like a cakewalk for the most part. I mean, I know they play the Patriots twice. That's, but I mean, you look at the. I know we're at this point. You guys are just lo- you know, loving our thoughts, but I mean. Buffalo, I mean, the Jets, the Giants, the Bengals, okay, New England, the Titans with Mariota. Granted, I mean, the Browns play the Titans too, so that's not fair. But, you know, the Dolphins, the Dolphins, uh, the Eagles, which they got smoked in that game, Washington, uh, the Dolphins again, uh, Denver with Brandon Allen, which I guess the Browns lost to that Denver team, so that's not fair. Uh, you know, and then you got Dallas, the Ravens, and then Pittsburgh. So, I mean... Actually, you know what? There's I, a little more layups going on that back schedule. to. I don't. I'm not sure if, if Cleveland's schedule is as brutal as you, the the first half of their schedule was pretty brutal, but the second half of their schedule has been one of the easiest NFL schedules I've ever seen. So it's just, it's just not a very balanced schedule. It's, it was it was front loaded, and that's it. Yeah, I mean the last their, the, the second their half last of their five season. Ga- their is last a, five games is a joke they, of a schedule. They they should have won their last five games. And they were on route. I mean, they're on pace too. If they, but then that that loss to Pittsburgh when they. I'm actually surprised yeah. that that Freddie Kitchens wasn't fired after Sunday. How do you go into a game against a, a three eight and one team and just get run off the field and you can and you retain your coach? I just uh, you know where I stand on this. It's just that means that it would be the third head coach for Baker. It's going to happen anyway. Years, Freddie and- Kitchens is going to get fired in two weeks. Why, like why? Like the, the has team, there been reports about that? No, I'm just saying that you can't. The, the Browns are done as a franchise if they think that they can go into next season with Freddie Kitchens as their head coach. I mean, I that's just, just, remember, just. I thought I was seeing some reports of like how they they're going to retain him and they weren't planning on firing him. But I mean, yeah, who knows? If oh, that's, really? I thought I was seeing that. That's completely so maybe, indefensible. Maybe, no, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I didn't see that stuff. Like, but I mean, that's I, could have swore I saw if, some if, tweets. If, or if Cleveland is planning on going into next season with Freddie Kitchens as their head coach, just sign sign Baker sign Mayfield's death certificate right now. He he will not be a successful NFL quarterback. 
looking at Twitter. Apparently, there was a Jarvis Landry tirade after the Cardinals Browns game. I, you know, I just I haven't. Uh, I'm seeing some other headlines saying that Freddie Kitchens has officially lost the team. So, you know, maybe that's not true. Maybe they will fire him. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, he, you know, I, I wouldn't be that broken up about it, but, uh, I don't know. He's got yeah, a, we'll like, it's, I don't know. This is, and this is just me now just kind of going off the cuff, but him, Mayfield having, having such a, having such a bad season for me has really just made this NFL season like really unenjoyable. Um, and I, and I, and I think it's generally been a pretty uninteresting NFL season in general. Uh, but man just yeah Mayfield sucking just has not made it better at all yeah it's not it's not fun and yeah we'll see I mean as of right now I look to be one of the people that's in the in the camp of wrong about Lamar Jackson I mean I just didn't see it uh, yeah I'm, I'm still slightly skeptical I'm curious to see what happens after a full off season of oh he's gonna come back down to earth eventually there's uh, there's just no doubt in my mind like and I know it's it's kind of turned into a bit of like a like a trendy take to say yeah he's going to come back down to earth eventually, but it it really is true that at some point in time a team is going to force him to be a pocket passer, and I like I know a lot of people but don't hey, want to hear it, but hey, but he, it's going to be in the playoffs against New England, and they're going to be successful doing it. But but Grant, I, he always is a pocket passer though. Everyone will tell you that all of his passes are completed from the pocket. But it's like there's a giant asterisk to that because because a lot of the reason why is because there's so many open players because they're so scared about him running the ball. And that this this offense, it's different than the offense Baltimore had a season ago whenever they threw him in there. I mean, it's more finely tuned. They went all in on it and they they deserve all the credit for it. And so now after since this offense is different, I'll be curious to see what happens after you know an off season of defensive coordinators getting their hands on it. And there's no doubt about it that he is just so physically gifted. Like it's he's such a threat to run the ball with his leg. I mean that's why he's so good, and he has made a lot of good throws. You can't take that away from him. He's been able to sit back. Oh, there he's had a, he's had an outstanding season. Yeah, a great great season. He's 100 so, percent deserving of the MVP. If this could continue into another season, like next year, and it comes out and everything, my God! I mean, that how scary would that be for everybody? I mean, yeah, I guess I just I, I can't. What's going to happen in the playoffs when they go play the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes takes the ball first to start the game and they go and score in three plays to go up seven to well, nothing? The problem is, and they're in a shootout. The problem with that is though, is that Lamar is incredibly fortunate that he happens to be on a team that. Went all in with him offensively. Got him all that the right personnel. They got big, beefy guys up front. They got Marquise Brown as a deep threat. But also the defense is really good. Baltimore's got a really good defense. It's not a bad defense. So in the even NFL if he though, does struggle in the NFL though. The defense keeps him in it. In the NFL though, if Patrick Mahomes is hot and is feeling it, there's not a defense on planet Earth that can stop him. And that yeah, and that, you know, Patrick, that that's the that's the case in the NFL in general. But you Patrick Mahomes, he's he's never he's not going to be as good though in the cold weather, you know, and the winds swirling. Oh, you don't know that. I mean, it's, January. It's 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 been nice in January in Kansas City before. Hmm. So Has that's it? that's all I'm saying. Like, if you don't, good defenses cannot stop a an outstanding. Well, wouldn't they be playing attack. in they Baltimore? They'd be playing in Baltimore though if they. Oh, so the maybe playoffs, the weather would be better. I don't know. But, it's bad in Baltimore. No, it's I'm just cold. saying. Like, I don't. If if Patrick Mahomes and, and that offense is is at is at full speed and is is like 
is executing the way that they can, there's no such thing as good defense. It doesn't exist. You can't stop it. It's impossible. <laughs> like that's why, like that, that's why I yeah, always th- like. It is there is good defense. No, you, you in, can in, stop in it. the Manning era, in the Manning era when he was with the Colts, and I heard people talk about how oh this defense is really good. I always just laughed because I was like, no, you don't understand. If if Peyton Manning and that offense play well, your defense doesn't stand a freaking chance. And well, and you can say you can say the same thing got, about you can say the same thing about Baltimore's offense right now probably. Well, but, Peyton Manning continually got beaten by a really good Patriots defense over and over and over again in the playoffs because that was a really good defense and they shut down whatever Peyton liked to do. So it is possible. I don't understand. I mean, and plus, I guess Baltimore and Casey already played and, and the Chiefs won. So, I mean, that's to your point that happened already, but that was all the way back in I'm trying, week three. I, I'm trying. I'm basically trying to say it is impossible to defend a to defend somebody who is just throwing jump balls accurately and catching them. You can't, like, I don't know. You just can't do it. It's impossible to stop a really highly functioning pro-style passing game. You just can't really do it. Well, the problem with the Chiefs are is that the Chiefs can't run the football. So that'll make it even easier for the Ravens' defense to defend them. Yeah, I don't... If, if, it doesn't, if they play doesn't again, I'd be interesting to see what happens. It doesn't matter. Because they already I, play I each other once. I guess, yeah. I, I'm coming from the perspective of... You it's just you just can't stop a, a high a highly functioning passing game in the NFL. Like I guess Mahomes had three hundred and forty yards passing in the snow the other day, so that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I don't I I think if 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 there's a one hundred percent healthy Patrick Mahomes going against this Baltimore team, I'm I'm probably gonna be inclined to take Kansas City in that game. Oh man, I had one other uh I thought I had one other point to make before you kind of started talking about why you didn't like this season, but I've already forgotten it. I can't remember. Well, it's, it's been a bad That's season okay. in the NFL. That there's just there hasn't been a lot of parity. Just go look at the standings. the The, the playoffs is going to be really interesting, but in terms of a regular season, this has been one of the worst regular seasons in the NFL in a long time. I mean, yeah. the the TV ratings I don't think reflect it, but just hasn't. I mean, yeah, the TV ratings are up. Yeah, people like their NFL football. I think, just, I think you might just be in the moment here. Maybe, but I, I think this season especially it ha- has been, for the first time, it's obvious that there's a passing of the torch between the quarterback class that was a thing for 10 or 15 years onto the new class now. And as of right now, in terms of the new class, it's basically Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson. Everyone else is just like kind of, ugh, not great. Yeah, I, I, I will say this. I don't think the NFC... Is that particularly interesting? I think all the interest is in the AFC. I, I find the Ravens to be incredibly interesting, and the Patriots and that whole situation pretty interesting too. Because I mean that offense isn't good, and it's that defense is incredible. I mean it was obviously incredibly overrated uh, relative to what people were saying about how be- maybe best ever. I mean that schedule they played the first like eight games was just the easiest schedule ever. I mean and now they're playing some teams with pulses and and they're not nearly as good. So. That that team's interesting to me too because I, I just want to see how that works in the playoffs. Like, will all of a sudden the Patriots figure it out? They have in the past, but will they this year? They I don't did last know. year. Yeah, but, I mean they, the offense wasn't nearly as bad as it is it last year's is now. They lost five no games last Rob year Gronkowski. to teams that did not make the playoffs. I mean the key though is there's no Rob Gronkowski this year. I mean that was the guy that unlocked everything for them down the stretch. It seemed like in the postseason, so. All right. Wow. We've uh, we've done a nice job of expanding this podcast. That's for sure. Anything else? Might as well ask. Nah, I'm done. 
<laughs> All right. That's it for today. So, again, we'll see what happens on Wednesday during signing day and then what happens during the media availability when Riley and Grinch and all the players talk. So stay tuned to your podcast feed. We'll try to get at least one more episode out to you guys uh, this week before the weekend. So we'll see what we can do there. So until then, for Grant, I am Lee. This is West of Everest.